today on Against the Grain. What would, what should getting beyond capitalism look like? What should we make of post-capitalist strategies, of calls for reclaiming or extending the commons, of arguments that trumpet full automation? I'm CS. Greg Albo, co-editor of the Socialist Register, considers and critiques a number of post-capitalist visions and projects coming right up. And this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. Post-capitalism. The word, the concept, appeals to many people disenchanted with or outraged by contemporary capitalism. Post-capitalist strategies are not, of course, a monolith. Numerous scholars and activists have advanced their own visions for how to move toward a future beyond capitalism. Is a revolution needed to topple the capitalist order? And if so, what would or should that look like? Or is steady and incremental reform the route forward? And if so, how is that to be achieved? How important is it to reclaim or expand the commons? And what role might technology, and more specifically ICT, information and communications technology, play in overturning neoliberalism? These and other questions have been taken up by thinkers like Eric Olin Wright, Sylvia Federici, John Holloway, Michael Hart, Antonio Negri, and Paul Mason. Greg Albo, a York University-based political scientist and co-editor of the Socialist Register, has penned an assessment and critique of a range of post-capitalist strategies. His essay, Post-Capitalism, Alternatives or Detours, appears in Socialist Register 2021, which has the title Beyond Digital Capitalism, New Ways of Living. When Greg Albo and I connected recently, I asked him what motivated the creation of that volume, as well as of his essay. When we were uh, constructing uh, the last couple of volumes of uh, the Socialist Register, we were thinking particularly about the durability of neoliberalism even after the financial crisis and the new organizations of capitalist power at the firms and state. Kind of alongside that, we were wondering about the projects of the left at this moment and why they seem to be spinning, losing, not gaining kind of any additional capacities, and not coming anywhere as a, as a new force to uh, challenge state power. We constructed two kind of volumes uh, in around these themes, one beyond market dystopia and the second one that we're speaking about beyond digital capitalism. And we kind of drew them together with the subtitle of, of new ways of living, uh, meaning, you know, to explore uh, also the way that the left was attempting to uh, address neoliberalism, develop kind of new projects, and the way this was occurring across a variety of scales from family life to community struggles to struggles over the state. We divided it a bit in between markets, uh, dealing with kind of questions of work and uh, circulation, uh, the problems of market provisioning. And the second volume on digital capitalism was particularly focused on time management and the struggles over time at work and home, the dystopias from digital capitalism. And I, I think, uh, you know, a long-standing theme of the register we wanted to bring in, and that was about digital tailorism. Uh, that is the the way that capitalism continually transforms technology and the technology that evolves is always in, within the, the structure of capitalist social relations. It was also always bringing disciplines as well as some additional human capacities in terms of the output for amount of inputs that occur. And so in other words, the value production is always overwhelming both the conditions of work, control over work, and also uh, the types of commodities being produced. So that was uh, the focus of this particular volume. Myself, I had a long-standing interest in alternatives. I think this was, for me, given the interest both in academic study of, of political economy and research and, and activism, it always struck me as this was always not just about alternatives in themselves, but was also always about building a political block, a different 
a historical political force that could challenge capitalist domination over production and the state. Um, it's been dis impossible to disentangle all these alternative forms of alternatives that would come up from working class politics and the left. And I therefore, in some senses, never felt completely alienated from them or against them, but was always concerned about what kind of anti-capitalist politics might actually form around them and what what forms could break value production and lead to a radical democratization of society where you know workers had much more control over their workplaces, their lives, uh, over social provisioning, and so on. And it was striking me when looking at kind of the debates of the left right now in terms of digital capitalism, how, how many of the views kind of uh, were expecting again to have capital solve our problems. That is that the logic of uh, that was occurring in value production was all also providing the conditions for socializing firms, socializing the state, and providing the new kinds of workers that would be able to socialize the whole enterprise. Um, I was uh, particularly struck then, on the one hand, all these alternative f forms within the popular economy that have been coming forward out of the kind of the multiple failures of neoliberalism and people just trying to cope uh, in forming co-ops or forming community kitchens and so on, and the impossibility of any of the, those efforts being scaled up as an actual anti-capitalist project. On the other hand, all these positions occurring uh, that it was expecting the new technologies to do that, that hard political work for us. While reading this and, uh, and, and being engaged in a variety of struggles, it, it struck me how many of them were coming under the rubric of post-capitalism. And post-capitalism distinguishing themselves both from uh, you know, some of the aspects of the solidarity economy, but especially as a way to distinguish themselves from old-style social democracy and, and what they would see as the authoritarian command systems that were part of the history of, of the Soviet Union and the history of uh, China pre-Deng Xiaoping. So your essay critiques three forms of post-capitalist thought. The Real Utopias Project, which is associated with the sociologist Eric Olin Wright, long based at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, very influential scholar uh, and writer. Second, the various approaches to commoning. And third, those advocating full automation in the name of post-capitalism. And I think, you know, you're referring pretty explicitly to, to that when you were saying earlier that some folks see sort of technology as the answer. Uh, let's start with the Real Utopias Project. So Eric Olin Wright, for example, wrote a book in 2010 called Envisioning Real Utopias. Uh, what arguments did he make there? Yeah, I think uh, uh, with Wright, he is the major sociologist of class, one of the most important through the 20th century and kind of the work he did class and his work on real utopias also has a, has a, has a relationship to his work on class and class structures, particularly his emphasis on the, on the development of new stratifications with, within class, particularly related to skills, education, status, kind of mixing Weber and Marx. And it's not surprising when you do, when you reconceive class uh, and modify Marx's relative focus on the relations of production and, and start focusing on questions of, of class and relationship to status and income and educational uh, uh, development, you start looking for alternatives at the level of patterns of ownership and asset distribution. And Wright conceives this struggle uh, as being within classical Marxism in, in the sense that they still remain struggles over work and who will con control work. And he less focuses on the on control of the state, but particularly over the mechanisms of redistributing asset ownership to look at control over work. And to some extent, he conceives this in, in a way that returns, he might say is returning to classical Marxism in his own views, in some ways, but is also returning to classical post-war social, dem social democracy. And that he's, he's searching for a positive class compromise that will kind of increase output, increase the quality of work, 
yield positive gains for both the capitalist uh, ownership, but also through redistributing part of the asset ownership also yield some positive gains for workers in these firms. So by class compromise, do you mean that he advocates a certain rapprochement between workers and the capitalist class? And if so, you know, how do you assess that? Um, because I would imagine many socialists, including yourself, harbor a distinct hostility toward uh, capitalists and, and wouldn't want to see such a compromise being institutionalized. Yeah, that's exa- you've hit on exactly what he attempts. And in a, in a sense, that's the why it's very important to kind of draw this point out of positive class compromise. That's the way he's also evaluating the post-war period and that the gains that were occurring from uh, the accumulation of capital and, and productivity changes were then being shared out with the workers. Uh, with the changes of information capitalism and some of the uh, ways that technologies have shifted, he's searching for not only a means to reestablish that kind of positive class compromise, but also to try to find it in multiple forms in the economy, the state, the social economy, these different subsets that he analyzes as, as carrying specific logics. The record of producing past, uh, any kind of record of producing positive class compromises has been a result of class struggle and class organization. Workers gaining increased union uh, density, uh, in gaining increased capacities to contest workplaces, uh, therefore also contesting workplaces, contesting wage distribution, and from there typically being associated these with the development of political parties and, and especially anti-capitalist political parties. You know, those were the conditions for producing these, these kinds of positive class compromises. They aren't granted. Whereas the way he's, well, the way the, the, the text work and is thinking now, it's almost that there will be granted from the capitalist class because of the positive gains they will have by granting those concessions in terms of increased output and therefore supposedly increased uh, profits. Uh, and therefore, much of the mechanisms he searches for in terms of uh, a post-capitalism has to do with the way that workers would become incorporated within uh, uh, production, uh, mainly in this case of workplaces, mainly through a redistribution of share ownership in various ways, various employees' share ownership plans and schemes. But he then extends it into a kind of a similar logic into a, a range of other ideas and sectors where he says real utopias are, are occurring right now. Right, he refers to, and you cite this in your a piece. So five examples that uh, Wright gives, uh, open cyber platforms, as with Wikipedia, workers co-ops, as in Mondragon in Spain, employee stock ownership plans, participatory budgeting, and tripartite cooperation, as in labor market training partnerships. Isn't it possible that if enough of these strategies were implemented and scaled up, as Eric desired and advocated, that capitalism could be weakened uh, to the point that socialism begins to take hold or socialism takes over? Yeah, that's the, that's the, the tipping point strategy develops that uh, these carry with them an alternative logic, an anti-capitalist logic in, in some senses. That's the only way his uh, tipping point notion of, of, of slowly and steadily capitalism being eroded, uh, the foundations for socialism being built. But then when one unpacks all these things uh, and looks at the way they've actually operated the examples he uses, their ability to escape value production as opposed to becoming incorporated in value production and, and in some senses just mediating the subordination of labor uh, within value production, within capitalism, you don't find them carrying that kind of logic. Uh, it's impossible to look at Wikipedia and think it carries an anti-capitalist logic, you know, given that it depends upon its philant- uh, capitalist philanthropy. You know, there's no cumulative logic that's there that's undermining, uh, you know, value production. Uh, the difficulty of Modrigan, uh, you know, as Sherry Kazmir and others have written, is once it's scaled up at all, the co-ops... In a capitalist economy, the co-ops often are forced to become more 
attuned to value production. That is, they're facing other major capitalist firms and are forced to kind of meet those conditions. And that then also affects also even the internal organization of them. You know, so co-ops can work very good as forms of worker participation on a smaller scale, providing better working conditions for the workers in those uh, workplaces. But those workplaces must test the market. And when they're scaled up, as in, as in the case of Madrigan, they become even more attuned to meet, meeting capitalist conditions of production, conditions of competition, and therefore reach a certain limit on their ability to be transformative as a whole. Um, ESOPs, uh, the employee stock ownership plans uh, that is invoked, particularly also invoking in terms of uh, the Quebec Solidarity Fund, you know, these are just have historically been so weak in terms of the amount of stock uh, sharing that occurs and basically kind of have a, end up having a few uh, worker appointees to boards of governors, but they don't change the logic of capitalist production as a whole. Uh, they're, almost, they're one of the weakest forms of, of stakeholder capitalism. And they have the effect of, of making the unions and the workers who, who gain the employee shares more attuned to the conditions of competition rather than carrying an anti-capitalist or anti-competition logic. You know, and I think all the, all the schemes that he puts forward kind of have that notion. And it's hard to see anywhere in the examples he uses where they are scaling up to be any kind of... Uh, of an anti-capitalist alternative that is subordinating capitalist logic to this alternative cooperative logic. That's the voice of Greg Albo, Associate Professor of Political Economy in the Department of Politics at York University, co-editor of the Socialist Register. He's written widely on the political economy of contemporary capitalism. And we are talking about an essay he contributed to Socialist Register 2021, which has the title Beyond Digital Capitalism, New Ways of Living. His essay is called Post-Capitalism, Alternatives or Detours with a question mark. I'm C.S. Song, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Another thinker, another set of thinkers you critique in your piece are Hart, Michael Hart, and Antonio Negri. Uh, Michael Hart, uh, a U.S.-based thinker at Duke, and Antonio Negri, an Italian radical. And they've written a, a number of books, including the Empire Trilogy. What do they look to in terms of knowledge and technologies as possible routes away from capitalism? So if right is particularly been focused, was focused on struggles and forms of share ownership and asset redistribution, overwork, the commoning projects often associated with autonomous Marxism are largely about constructing alternatives apart from work. Uh, but I think when we look at it closely enough, similar to right, they end up kind of advocating for a mixed economy, not too different from... Uh, what historically occurs within capitalism, different varieties of capitalism existing in different institutional forms existing alongside the dominant capitalist sector without offering an alternative. The key difference, I think, here is is two aspects. One is the target is a little bit different in seeing a notion of finding common spaces, common property, and so forth, uh, common practices. In the search for something apart from work and apart from the state, it's also searching for a more direct anti-capitalist logic. The peculiar thing, I think, particularly with Hart and Negre, is how much this anti-capitalist logic is seen to emerge from the logic of capitalism itself. You know, the information and communications technologies leveling the hierarchies of, that have been typical of, of capitalist firm organization, leading towards more network and more horizontal forms of organization by the firms. And by leveling hierarchies, you mean the fact that uh, with digital labor, there tends to be uh, more horizontal forms of, of uh, authority or networking? Exactly, exactly. That's exactly it, CS. There is a special emphasis on the new forms of labor outside the discipline of, of the old Fordist labor processes and the way that knowledge overturns these traditional hierarchies uh, in a sense that knowledge itself and knowledge production can escape the logic of capitalism 
and now it's embedded as they see it in the logic of ICT and therefore is carrying an anti-capitalist logic. Um, this is their famous understanding of, of uh, immaterial labor and the knowledge production that occurs through immaterial labor in the, the new uh, ICT sectors in that this immaterial labor and the knowledge that it has, the knowledge production it's engaged in, are also producing uh, a common in themselves, uh, a common of collaboration, of a new collective worker, etc. So the logic inside ICT production is being transformed from a capitalist logic into a commoning logic. And ICT means information and communications technologies. So you are saying that this immaterial labor, which, you know, if it's knowledge production, it's not, not, not labor creating a material product in the same sense as, you know, with factory production. This immaterial labor, this knowledge production, uh, you know, they're arguing, as you're saying, it, it promotes a kind of uh, departure from capitalism. Maybe it even um, suggests some kind of labor or production that capitalism can't control. Uh, can't reach, can't um, regulate in the way that it could regulate uh, workers in production before. Is that part of what's going on? And if so, uh, what in your mind might be problematic about that? Yeah, that's exactly it. It's this new kind of labor and the new type of knowledge production that emerges with uh, information and communication technologies that escapes the capitalist logic. And because this is what is growing in scale across the world, uh, it also is carrying an anti-capitalist logic. And between the new forms of, of knowledge production, the new forms of the collective worker forming, and the new uh, uh, commoning spaces of collaboration that, are, that, that emerge between the nexus between the two, this is the new anti-capitalist logic. It's kind of the old uh, vulgar Marxian claim that the gravedigger of capitalism is capital itself, in the sense that the transformations of the productive forces in themselves yield socialism. The twist is, of course, that they, they locate this within the multitude uh, that is constituted by uh, this new form of labor, um, and that becomes crucial. The difficulty is it in, in a sense of... Uh, is that even the way the logic of value production under under all these new communications technologies is actually occurring? To some extent, the, the, the traditional logic that has been embodied within capitalist technological change, that is the dead labor replacing living labor, that is the continual growth of fixed capital relative to labor inputs, uh, is also bringing a, a, a greater complexity to labor processes. And part of that greater complexity of the labor processes is always a form of, of Taylorism. That is the, the continual segmentation of, of, of work, the continual kind of increase of the disciplines over the labor process, the way that kind of what the subordination of, of labor is a continual uh, part of capitalist production. And so, you know, in one sense, if one follows that, you know, we would identify a digital Taylorism emerging. And it's not surprising that you would start seeing, you know, coding sweatshops and the intensification of work, you know, across the activities of so-called immaterial labor that uh, they're identifying as the as the new agent to overturn uh, capitalism. You know, we actually see the opposite in terms of, of, of rather than freedom occurring through the ICTs, there's an, a, there's an incredible expansion of surveillance, discipline in workplaces an expansion of the hierarchies between workers uh, and the so-called uh, development of, of networks that are more horizontal as opposed to vertical quite clearly uh, false by the size of the giant media companies, the social media companies and other uh, digital capitals have formed. You know, they're massive, are the, the most massive corporations that exist now in terms of their valuations but often also in terms of the numbers of employees they have and the complexity of the organizations they're running. So they're also very deep in terms of their vertical hierarchies. And we see the, 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 those vertical hierarchies, especially in the expansion of precarious work of various kinds. All the uh, platforming of, of, of work from 
Uber to uh, Fedora, you know, the food services, all these different uh, components that are, are expanding. And importantly, they've been uh, uh, taking this labor and this new form of organization into the state sector and, and commodifying and dispossessing what were public goods and common goods often. Uh, so rather than, the, the, rather than what's being projected, this logic has been going often in the opposite direction. You know, so we see these uh, the big consulting companies like uh, Deloitte or KPMG and so on being critical uh, actors in the contracting out of uh, work in the state sector, but also not just the contracting of, of work, you know, in a, in a component here or a component there, the cleaning staff or whatever, but also in the provisioning of services. These new technologies are playing important roles in the, in the various efforts at privatization of, of public health care systems, for example, or in the privatization of transit systems. So rather than kind of being a gateway into building a new common, that is some extrapolation of material labor and knowledge production, building a commoning of collaboration, in practice, organized through the big companies for value production, they have become main, some of the main actors in seizing what we've been able to take into the public sector and provide a range of public goods and are systematically privatizing it. You know, those of us in the education sector particularly seize it, you know, the way that the digital companies and so forth are finding various ways to privatize various uh, educational activities from kindergarten all the way through the university system. I'm CS. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Greg Albo joins me, A-L-B-O. He teaches political economy at York University, and he wrote an essay that is part of Socialist Register 2021, edited by Leo Panich and my guest, Greg Albo. It's called Post-Capitalism Alternatives or Detours. So you were talking about Michael Hart and Antonio Negri's analysis. There's, of course, much more to say about all these thinkers. And I encourage listeners both to get a hold of Socialist Register 2021 and read Greg Albo's argument, which, of course, has more detail than he can provide today, as well as check out some of the thinkers he's critiquing and make a decision for yourself. So we were talking about Hart and Negri and their idea of sort of uh, knowledge production being a site and a space for commoning, for creating a common space, developing outside of capitalist control. In this regard, you also bring up two other thinkers in your piece who also have an emphasis on commoning. One is John Holloway, the Mexico-based theorist, uh, who, who believes strongly that autonomy from the state is absolutely fundamental. He's, he's not about taking power. Uh, and Silvia Federici, the radical scholar and educator, who has talked about the importance of creating autonomous spaces. What, what is your critique or what would you want to say about their projects? Yeah, I, maybe I, I'll just actually uh, begin with going back to Hart and Negri just briefly. I was really struck and kind of uh, actually almost kind of um, was left in a puzzle for a couple of days when I read Hart and Negri's book on the Commonwealth. And I, I was a bit shocked how conventional were the demands there. Uh, and there were demands on the state for a universal basic income, universal health care, open access to the Internet and so on. You know, relatively conventional demands for a welfare state and, and a mixed economy. A range of other thinkers, uh, along with this, the focus on anti-value struggles outside the state, it's a bit striking of how often they end up in the, in the same space. Uh, you know, in Holloway's uh, uh, yelling of a no and just do it, you know, uh, you know, where everything comes in active resistance, uh, there's a, you know, it ends up as a similar kind of focus on the mixed economy, because that's what you'd be building if you're just doing it. It's a mixed economy alongside the capitalist sector and, a, and alongside the state, which continue on, you know, so it, again, it, it's, it ends up with its logic, a kind of uh, a defense of a mixed economy, uh, but at least outside value struggles. You briefly explained the term mixed economy earlier this hour. Could you flesh that out a bit for us? Yeah, a mixed economy is, in some senses, is, is what we live in. 
you know, where 40 to 50 percent of the economy is dominated by the capitalist sector, the large capitalist sector. 40 percent or so will pass through the through the, the state sector. And, you know, uh, 10 to 15 percent is in the various forms of the social economy, uh, uh, social enterprises, the co-op sector and so on. So the mixed economies is you know, a mix of organizational forms providing goods and services. And then we obviously characterize that uh, to the welfare state in the sense that the welfare state and provisioning for health, education, welfare, housing accounts for a large portion of that 40 to 50 percent that passes through the state. Uh, obviously, apart from the, uh, the expenditures on the military production. And are you saying that, Silvia Federici, are you suggesting that her project, to some degree, boils down to advocacy for some sort of mixed economy? No, I, I think it's just the logic where it ends up, uh, partly with the, the focus on finding forms of the caring sector outside uh, value struggles and outside the state, you know, ends up with the, with the similar kind of small scale mixed economy existing alongside the capitalist sector. Because if we were going to adequately provide for child care on a uni- on a universal basis, or elder care on a universal basis, or all these other kind of areas connected to care, the scaling up would depend upon a, some form of redistributional capacity, some form of enforcement of standards, uh, some form of, of redistribution across regions, redistribution across uh, individuals, and so on. So you're looking for an extra market organization, and the only extra market organization that can take this on are the state sector. So you kind of end up arguing for that a mixed economy, but the mixed economy that's allowing more uh, greater diversity in the forms of concrete provisioning. So there's more control over that provisioning uh, by the users and the producers you know when rerouted again through the struggle over the state and finding a, and, and developing an anti-capitalist logic so you're also opposing private daycare so you're opposing private health care uh, so you're opposing private nursing homes then the logic of what she that's being argued about uh, reworking and rethinking the conditions of work and the conditions of governance over specific health care sites or specific uh, daycare sites is, is a very positive. But, it, you know, unless it has the has a redistributive and anti-capitalist logic that would be uh, struggled through over the state, uh, it ends up just being another form of the mixed economy. So, Greg, another category of, of thinkers and thought that you examine and critique in your piece in Socialist Register 2021 has to do with those people, those folks, scholars, activists, advocating full automation in the name of post-capitalism. And here we have thinkers like Nick Cernicek and Alex Williams, who wrote a book called Inventing the Future, Post-Capitalism and a World Without Work. And Paul Mason, who wrote a book like Post-Capitalism, A Guide to Our Future. Uh, they look to new technologies, to technical changes occurring within capitalism. What do they see there that they find encouraging? Yeah, I think uh, in this case, they're both uh, arguments uh, for full automation, that full automation uh, will provide the conditions to build lives apart from work, as well as changing things inside workplaces. Um, and particularly the way uh, they project that the acceleration of technological change will create massive amounts of free time, but it'll inevitably change the organizational structures of the capitalist sector from the deepening of the new technologies, particularly information capitalism. For Mason, he, you know, he has a lot of the same logic about the relationship of information capitalism to networks, to knowledge production, uh, to uh, immaterial labor, this new form of, 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 of working classes, and uh, also that, uh, that uh, information capitalism produces a new commons. So he adopts that uh, same argument. I think the difference is, is, is he, even more strongly, puts an emphasis fully on full automation, uh, transforming uh, value production because capitalism can't cope with a certain logic inside value production. 
that is the tendency towards uh, what he terms a, a zero marginal cost. That is the ability to kind of multiply digital software and digital technologies endlessly at zero marginal cost as changing and radically changing overall conditions for value production. So it kind of breaks the logic of capital from the information information uh, technologies from what it does in terms of work itself and the logic of the way that fixed capital is transformed and moves towards zero marginal cost production. Um, and that kind of changes the conditions by which we can envision alternatives. Right. So zero marginal cost means that as, as more and more uh, of, this, of these products, immaterial products are, are produced, um, they take less and less funds or capital to, to produce. And you're saying that capitalism or they're saying that capitalism can't handle that, that that's not, that's not within capitalist logic and therefore it constitutes or it will inevitably constitute this, this drive toward automation, toward replacing humans with it, for example, or robots. It will drive a post-capitalist future. Yes, that's, that's exactly what's being argued, with a, a little bit of a, a twig to that, in that uh, zero marginal cost means, of course, you don't have to have any prices. Uh, so in other words, it breaks the conditions for producing profits, uh, and therefore is a break in value production directly. And therefore, what has to be envisioned is an alternative form of organization as a whole, because the logic of value production and the logic of capitalist firms is being broken by the move towards more horizontal organizational structures, immaterial labor, knowledge and, and collaboration. And then also that the logic now of producing software, the producing new uh, goods, the way AI, artificial intelligence would spread is a movement towards zero marginal costs, which breaks the ability of capitalists to capture value and therefore no profits uh, so in other words he has a very kind of post-capitalist uh, vision that is very futuristic in terms of, of of the extent to which these new technologies will break capitalist value production you know and he tries to elaborate that on uh, p2p sharing you know modular organizational forms free software and then decentralized control and a focus that all this would partly occur if we can break patent structures and all the intellectual property rights protections that are built into national legal systems, but also in, in, in terms of trade agreements. It has a logic that would completely undermine capitalist production and therefore also provide a basis for a post-capitalist future. That's the voice of Greg Albo. His essay, Post-Capitalism, Alternatives or Detours, appears in Socialist Register 2021. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm C.S. Song. What room does Paul Mason's theory leave for class and class conflict? It's, it's a real mixed bag. Uh, he has a, you know, an interesting book on some of the rebellions that have occurred around uh, anti-globalization movement or some of the other protests that have happened since the, in, the, in the 2000s uh, called Kicking It Off Everywhere. Obviously, there there are conflicts as he sees them with capitalist organization of the state and and uh, production, uh, but he identifies them with this post-capitalist logic. It's coming from the way that social media allows organization to occur. It comes from those people that are uh, pushed to the margins uh, under the new conditions of of, of information capitalism, are, but aren't kind of integrated into stable work conditions. But in a sense, that conflict is being steadily accommodated by the logic that's occurring within the information capitalism as a whole. So in in another sense, that conflict is subordinate to the logic that's already emerging. So it's not surprising that, you know, in some senses, you know, he's been in and around uh, um, the politics of the Labour Party and the politics of pushing a reform agenda that that has this behind it, uh, rather than a, as as a focus on more directly on on control over the firms or nationalization of the firms, nationalization of, of the banking sector. In fact, he expects kind of the information technologies in the, in those sectors, whether it's finance or in the in other other uh, 
areas producing material goods to kind of do the work for us. Yeah, so a kind of class conflict is, in one sense, he has a, has a vision of it almost everywhere. It's kicking it off. On the other hand, it's almost nowhere in the sense, because the, the information technology's logic is, is doing the work for us. So, you know, it's, it's a bit vague on, on, at times on the vision of how political parties and socialist politics have to be rebuilt because of, uh, you know, this process is almost inevitable. It's the future. And how does Nick Cernicek's and Alex Williams's thought differ from uh, Paul Mason? I mean, they're appealing to the desirability of small-scale, autonomous politics of commoning with a, with a very technological focus? Yeah, I'm sympathetic uh, a lot to the point of, the, uh, of, of departure of Chernichek and, uh, and Williams in the, in the sense that they're against a lot of what they call, I don't like the term, term they use, folk politics, but they're against a, a, a lot of kind of uh, uh, politics of nostalgia, either for attempting to rebuild the old mixed economy or attempting to find localist solutions to global problems and to some extent just polemically cast their argument in the opposite direction about uh, a manifesto for accelerating all these all these changes and that those changes will be the conditions for building a, a, an alternative future they, they map out a, a somewhat different uh, path than mason in seeing much more of a, of a role for uh, the way that neoliberal capitalism will have to be a challenge that the technologies themselves won't do it and a focus much more on the conditions that would be possible uh, in terms of a radical reduction of work uh, radical alternative forms of provisioning from the increased output that would be provided by a massive expansion or an acceleration of of technologies that is the capacity to produce more from given inputs and so they're in some senses, their argument goes to an old Marxist chestnut of a certain kind, you know, which says, you know, build the forces of production, and the consequence of that will be the foundation for human freedom and uh, and universal provisioning. So they hang a, a lot of their hat on that logic, and it's a question then of whether whether they're saying enough about and strategizing enough about the state. Or they're saying enough about the contradictions internal to the the new technologies, the way that the new technologies of and particularly information, uh, the information technologies, you know, carry, you know, also uh, a disciplinary logic. You know, it, it carries digital tailorism. It carries uh, surveillance. It carries the discipline of, of capitalism. It carries the, the possibilities for the dispossessions of, of public provisioning. You know, and so their hopefulness or the futurism is, you know, depends on a particular kind of reading of the capacity for radical reduction of work uh, from information capitalism and the ability then for live different lives from that radical reduction of work. Clearly, that's a possibility in the sense that, uh, you know, we you're getting more output for less inputs and therefore from the, those productivity advances, you can take it in more goods or you can take it in more time off. And the left, you know, has historically been for uh, some split between those. And in the conditions where we need to address ecological challenges, it's even more the, the case that we should be putting the balance towards taking it and more time off. You know, so that part of the argument I'm, I'm very sympathetic with. But how that can be done without organizations at the workplace, uh, deeper unionization, workers developing plans for their sector to kind of gain control and whether any of this can be done without a struggle over the state uh, and the struggle over controlling the the new technologies more directly through different forms of, of socialization and nationalization that have to occur you know without that we see the opposite being uh, the case of the trends for the last 40 years uh, where you know, more and more of our life is actually being absorbed in work. Uh, there's a deep polarization of work, but, you know, capitalist logic has entered into daily life apart from the workplace a lot. And we haven't been able to reduce work time in any kind of democratic way or ordered way that shares out work, but it's, it's in a way that has polarized work. 
and polarized work hours. And so the, the struggles that are necessary to accomplish that aren't given by the information capitalist technologies. And simply calling for their acceleration only, in a sense, can accelerate the problems, not the alternatives to it. So the, you know, without, a, uh, without thinking through what are the concrete forms of, of the new organizations socialist politics has to, has to take and then and the forms of struggle over the state to push for alternatives i think it also leaves a, a you know a relatively a truncated conclusion and the real problem of, of thinking that post-capitalism is evolving itself within inside capitalism uh, as something that already exists as opposed to something that we need to struggle for and create Greg Albo joins us on Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm C.S. Song. And Greg, you talked about the motivations behind Socialist Register 2021, uh, the edition called Beyond Digital Capitalism, New Ways of Living, and I think the iteration just before that. Can you talk briefly about the project of Socialist Register as a whole? It's been around for decades. What did it exist to do? And the Socialist Register kind of uh, represented from its beginning when founded by Ralph Miliband and, and John Saville in uh, 1964, a project of, of the new left, uh, a new left that was already identifying the limits of social democracy, its uh, accommodation to capitalism and its search for redistributive politics within capitalism rather than a socialist alternative. Uh, and the way that social democracy had become a, a buttress uh, to the capitalist state and the various kinds of projects that go along with that within the advanced capitalist countries. The other side of it was not seeing alternatives in the authoritarian command societies uh, that emerged in the Soviet Union or in China and other, other few places in the world. That is, they, they had collectivized production but they had not democratized their societies and had not democratized work and workers weren't in control. And so, uh, you know, the Socialist Register uh, uh, emerged in that context outside of, of social democracy and outside the existing uh, communist parties. I think uh, from that kind of premise, there was something else that characterized that politics. Uh, you know, to some extent, you considered the politics of the independent left but it was also a politics that kind of had linkages to dissident components within the historical communist parties, uh, such as the El Manifesto group in Italy. It also had some alliances with the left in, in different social democratic parties, uh, say particularly in some of the Scandinavian parties, and also with uh, uh, different Trotskyist tendencies that were also uh, against the command economies and uh, against uh, social democracy. Um, it was always about trying to build a continual kind of revitalization of Marxism or keep on the agenda creative Marxism. Uh, Marxism that was identified with Marx and Engels and uh, that his historical tradition and many of the followers such as uh, subsequent people like uh, uh, Luxembourg and Gramsci and, and so forth. Uh, so clearly located in that tradition but always see searching for Marxism that would speak to the present moment. Uh, and so its analysis was never a focus on so much historical uh, essays as opposed to contemporary essays, uh, essays uh, assessing the political and economic conjuncture of the moment, and then from that debating out uh, strategies for the left. In that sense, it's always been about, you know, the attempt to build a new left and new alliances and looking for breakthroughs of the left and, and treating them seriously and positively and then assessing critically of what kind of openings were there, what kind of closures different developments uh, meant. Uh, the other thing I would say is, is it's cast, although it merged quite specifically out of the new left context in Europe and especially Britain where uh, Saville and Miliband were located in their own work on focusing, especially on on the British labor movement. Uh, it was always international in its, in its cast. Uh, international in its cast in the sense of uh, uh, looking across at Europe, but also connected from the beginning with the various writers and commentaries with the developments in North America. And from there, uh, it was impossible in the 1960s or 1970s not to be involved and following closely 
the various ways that the decolonization struggles in the in the countries of the south were also mutating into different types of projects of the left from you know revolutionary overthrows of colonial states to you know left nationalist projects uh, and you know that is kind of the political position uh, that the register has maintained uh, one would even claim probably claim through the 1980s and the development and consolidation of neoliberalism, a, a, a certain kind of orthodoxy to that tradition. Uh, and that was, there was, as occurred in so many journals in Britain and in the U.S., a kind of flirtation with, uh, you know, to some extent of the developments from the new technologies and the way it was changing the challenges of political organizing to uh, flirtations with uh, all the old, all the left being gone, uh, old left being gone, and new identity forms of politics uh, are locating this in, in social movements apart from traditional working class politics, and so I think also against uh, a lot of uh, a lot of these developments uh, sticking to a certain working class politics and the need to reform uh, work, working class formation. Greg Albo, my guest, Associate Professor of Political Science at York University in Toronto, co-editor of the Socialist Register, co-editor of the book A Different Kind of State, question mark, Popular Power and Democratic Administration, and co-editor of Socialist Register 2021, which has the title Beyond Digital Capitalism, New Ways of Living. In many ways, we just scratched the surface of his essay in that volume. It's called Post-Capitalism, Alternatives or Detours with a Question Mark. Uh, Greg, thanks so much for your work, for the essay, for continuing with all your work with Socialist Register and obviously taking on additional burdens as a result of Leo's passing. Uh, and thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much. It's great uh, talking with you. And this is CS suggesting the important thing is not to stop questioning, and we hope you'll join us next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. You can visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio, resources, and more. You can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio, and you can follow us on Twitter at Radio Against.